Hey, daters. Are you sick of small talk and no date being planned? Well, I'm excited to introduce you to First Rounds on Me, a revolutionary dating app designed for modern singles who are fed up with the frustrations of today's dating scene. The app is all about actually helping you plan dates and build genuine connections. How so? Well, the only way you match with someone is by planning a date. Send a date, a time, and a location, and then the rest is up to you. Ready to go on real dates? You can get one free month of their premium subscription with code DOCTOR, D-O-C-T-O-R. Download First Rounds on Me using the link in the show notes and start building meaningful connections offline. Hello and welcome to Reimagining Love. I'm Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Relationships have the power to wound us and the power to heal us. As a clinical psychologist, author, and professor at Northwestern University, I've devoted my life to studying intimate partnerships and family dynamics. On Reimagining Love, I'm here to translate complex clinical topics into tools and takeaways that you can use in your relationships today. If you're ready to develop relational self-awareness and create vibrant and loving relationships with the people who matter most to you, you've come to the right place. I'm so glad that you're here. Welcome to another one of our solo deep dive episodes. This month's episode is about how to talk about the future with your partner. And it was inspired by an email that I received recently that was so touching. Well, obviously so touching. It became the inspiration for this whole episode. So this is a reimagining love listener who writes in from California saying, hello, I first want to say that I love your podcast. The way you frame things is in such a mature and compassionate way, one that I haven't heard anywhere else. I was wondering if you could do an episode on talking about the future with your partner. I'm in a long-term relationship, and I'm at the point where I'm wondering if I should stay or if I should go, because we don't quite have the same view on our future at this point. I know what I want. He is uncertain and doesn't know what he will want in 5, 10, 20 years. I love being with him, but I have this little voice in the back of my mind telling me that he isn't right for me because of this. I think a lot of people in relationships could benefit from hearing how to balance beliefs about the future and enjoying the present with your partner and knowing when it may be time to move on. Thank you again for a wonderful show. And that's the end of her email. The first thing I did was direct her to the two episodes that I did about relational ambivalence, because that's a piece of her question, right? Is like sitting in the, should I stay or should I go? But now we're going to focus our lens a little bit differently. And today on Reimagining Love, I'm going to help you navigate what I'm going to call a pace discrepancy. A pace discrepancy is a situation where one partner feels ready to move on to the next step in a commitment sequence, right? Sort of move towards a future. And the other partner is hesitant, is kind of shut down around this conversation. And a pace discrepancy can arise at any point in the narrative arc of your love story. It could be, I want to define the relationship 
and you want to keep it casual. I want to move in together and you aren't ready. I want to get married and you aren't sure yet. There's a lot packed in here, more than we can do in one episode. So I suspect we'll come back around. But today, our focus is going to be on how we can use the tools of relational self-awareness to focus on what might be causing a pace discrepancy in your relationship and what you can do about it. And as is the case in some of our other solo deep dive episodes, this episode includes a worksheet that's designed to help you and your partner address your pace discrepancy. So if you're already a newsletter subscriber, the worksheet is going to appear like magic in your mailbox. Otherwise, you can head to dralexandrasolomon.com slash future and download a copy of the worksheet. So I want to start by saying that pace discrepancies are wholly inevitable. You are not your partner. Your partner is not you. You come into the relationship with a worldview, a set of cultural identities, a particular set of experiences, and a unique blend of strengths and growing edges, which means that the chances that you and your partner are going to be ready for the exact next step in your relationship at exactly the same time is slim to none. But it's incredibly tender stuff. And so that means that it's easy to fill the space between what I'm ready for and what you're ready for with insecurity, impatience, miscommunication, fear, and doubt even about the viability of the relationship which is why the topic of a pace discrepancy is going to warrant our careful attention. Here's our plan. Part one, I'm going to talk about the big picture, how cultural context shapes our hopes and expectations about how we plan for the future with a partner. Part two, I'm going to put a relational framework around this issue, calling this challenge a pace discrepancy right off the bat helps us move out of that finger-pointing stance where one partner says, why won't you talk with me about the future? And the other partner says, why are you putting so much pressure on me? In part three, I'm going to talk about what might be coming up inside of each partner. I'm going to be using the terms the faster-paced partner, the one who's ready for more commitment, who wants to talk about the future, And I'm going to use the term, the slower paced partner, the person who's got their foot a little more on the brakes, who doesn't want to talk about the future, who's a bit more hesitant. So we'll kind of dive into the psychology of both the faster paced partner and the slower paced partner. And then part four, I'm going to talk about what to do, offering suggestions for the faster paced partner and for the slower paced partner. Before I do what I love to do, which is giving you all of the nerdy frameworks and tools and strategies, I do want to say this. First, in some cases, the simplest explanation is the explanation that fits. Your partner does not want to talk about the future with you because they do not see a future with you or they do not want a future with you. As painful as that is, perhaps their deep truth is they are here for a good time not a long time, which means that if your goal is to partner with somebody where building a future together is on the table and their goal is to completely take it as it comes, the two of you are not aligned. You have mismatched goals. 
And if that person is clear that they are comfortable staying in their current perspective, which is like a live for now, see what happens kind of perspective, if that's their truth and that's their preference, your choices are going to be to either accept what's being offered or to leave. And this can be very, very, very hard for those of us who are awesome at squinting our eyes and tilting our heads and just seeing all of the ways where if they would only, if they could only, we would be great together. The second thing that's related to the first is that even though a pace discrepancy is wholly inevitable, right? Chances are really good that one of you is going to be a bit more ready for the next step sooner than the other. The place where the rubber hits the road is here. Does your partner want to work with you to explore how you ended up with a pace discrepancy in the first place and how the two of you can protect what is otherwise a great relationship from the impact of the pace discrepancy? And that's why I'm going to spend the rest of the episode giving you the tools that you need to move out of that finger pointy, it's either my way or it's your way, into a perspective that is us, the two of us, sitting together, shoulder to shoulder, looking together at this thing called our pace discrepancy. In an ideal world, your partner also is going to listen to this episode or they're at least going to listen to all of the insights that you glean from it. Certainly, listening to the episode on your own and creating shifts in your own thinking and your own behavior will change the dance between the two of you. But there's no getting around the fact that the conversations are going to be supercharged if both of you have listened to this episode. Okay, part one, the big picture. You know that whenever we dive into one of these topics, I really like to start us off at that 10,000 foot view. And it's all about socialization. We are subtly and profoundly shaped by the forces of socialization. What feels good, right, and normal to us is shaped by all of these forces that we can't see. Socialization is the air that we breathe and it creates sets of expectations and beliefs about who we should be in our relationships and how relationships should progress. So we're going to consider three aspects of socialization here. Aspect one, social anchoring. Aspect two, a present versus future mindset. And three, gender. The first aspect of socialization that I want us to explore is something that I'm calling social anchoring. There was a psychologist way back in 1977, Dr. Bernice Newgarten, and she declared that our behavior is controlled primarily by a social rather than a biological clock, meaning that our perception of whether we're hitting a particular developmental life stage milestone in an on-time way or an off-time way is defined largely by our social context. We look around ourselves. We look at the people around us. We anchor ourselves in community, asking questions like, am I doing this too soon? Am I early? Or asking, am I too old for this? Am I doing this too late in my life? And we look around ourselves to get answers to those questions because we are social creatures. And then 
we have all kinds of feelings attached to whatever answer we've come up with or whatever answer our family and friends give us, perhaps even if we haven't asked for their perspective. Ultimately, when we are seeking clarity about whether we are on time or off time, what we're asking is, am I normal? Do I fit in? Do I belong? Those are deep, big questions. And even if you have worked really hard in your life to give yourself permission to live on your own timeline, which hell yes, here for that, I would suspect that there may be moments when you do feel yourself noticing that you're slipping into a comparison mode, wondering about how you line up vis-a-vis the people around you. And so I'm just putting this out there to normalize that, that that is part of what we do as humans. And this idea of anchoring ourselves socially can happen in any domain, whether it's educational milestones, economic milestones, career milestones. But today, obviously, what I want us to consider is how social anchoring affects our perception of relationship milestones. You very likely have some downloaded scripts that live inside of you that give you a felt sense of how a relationship trajectory, quote unquote, should go. The length of time you should be dating someone before you cross certain thresholds, like becoming exclusive, like moving in together, like getting married. And the script gives you that felt sense of the age, perhaps, that you think you, quote unquote, should be when you reach these milestones. So let's bring forward one big milestone, which is getting married. And let's look at how social anchoring affects our sense or our perception of when we, quote unquote, should get married. The age of entry into marriage varies widely when we look globally. So according to worldatlas.com, in countries like Chad, Niger, Mozambique, Nepal, and Bangladesh, the average age of entry into marriage is 19. In Sweden, the average age of entry into marriage is 36 for men and 33 for women. In countries like Chile, Iceland, Spain, and Denmark, the average age is around 33 or 34. That's a really big range, and it's a topic for another day about how we feel about the implications of marrying at certain ages. But the bottom line here is that it's a large range, which tells us how incredibly culturally determined that milestone is. Also, parental influence matters a lot, which doesn't surprise us, right? Because our parents are socialized, just like we're socialized. We're all socialized. So parents influence the next generation's sense of when they feel like they should get married. And here's an example. There was a study done in 2020 in Nepal that found like parents' expectations of when their children should get married actually influences the age at which kids ended up getting married. So if a young person's parents valued older marriage, that kid was more likely to marry at an older age. So bottom line is that parents have an influence. Okay, so if you're not already married, but you are someone who thinks that you may want at some point to get married, putting out to you is that you probably have a sense of a timeline of some kind inside of your head. 
my college students will say things like, I don't want to get married before I'm 30. And I sometimes flippantly will respond. You just realize that you tempted the universe to send you an amazing partner who's going to want to lock it down with you before you ever thought you'd be ready. Because of the old saying, if you want to make God laugh, tell her your plans. But when people say things like that, right? I want to get married by this age or have kids by this age. What they're telling us is something about their communities of membership, their cultural location, their priorities, and even their identity. It's a little bit of a funky thing, though, isn't it? Because unlike running a marathon or making partner at your firm, milestones like marriage and to some extent parenthood are relational by nature. We're only in charge of one half of the equation. Take a moment and notice whether you have any resistance or reactivity inside of you right now around this notion that your definition of what is good, right, normal for you and your partner might be shaped in part by how you've been socialized. Because I think that sometimes we can get a little bit cranky about this idea. We tend to want to believe that our intimate relationship unfolds along its own unique timeline, a timeline that is based purely on how we feel about each other, a timeline that's derived within this little world of two. And it can then be kind of troubling to know that we are in part, at least, influenced by what we see around us. That idea confronts both our belief in free will and our romanticized idea that romantic relationships are propelled by love alone. Therefore, I really appreciate you hanging in there with me. Do you feel like you're at a crossroads in your love life? Maybe you are sick of modern dating or wondering if the person that you're with is your person. Whatever your situation, I have the perfect podcast for you, Dateable. Dateable is your insider's look into modern dating, hosted by Julie Krafchick and Yue Shu. Julie and Yue bring a sense of humor to their insightful explorations of all things dating, turning matches into actual dates, the psychology of relationships, red flags, attachment styles, and so much more. I am proud to have been a guest on their podcast three times. So if you're looking for a great starting point, check out my latest episode with them when you're ready and they're not. I'll put a link at the bottom of the show notes. Wherever you start, this podcast is going to help you feel inspired to date differently and create a love life that works for you. Subscribe to Dateable wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so before we move on, I'm going to offer you five relational self-awareness questions that can just give you a deeper and clearer sense about how social anchoring might be shaping this pace discrepancy that you and your partner are dealing with. So here's the five questions. One, what kind of timelines do you have in your head? Two, which of your cultural identities, think country of origin, gender, ethnicity, religion, race, sexuality, etc., most powerfully informs your timeline? Why and how? Three, in what ways has your family of origin shaped your timeline? Four, in what ways have your friends shaped your timeline? Five, in what ways has the media that you consume shaped your timeline? 
I love the idea of you also using these five questions to guide a conversation between you and your partner. And my hunch is that you're going to find that you and your partner have internalized somewhat different social clocks. And my hope is that unearthing this difference will create curiosity inside both of you rather than judgment. The bottom line here is that social anchoring is neither right nor wrong. It just happens. It just is. And the question becomes, how can our relationship honor and accommodate our different social clocks? The second aspect of socialization or cultural context that I want to address is this idea of present versus future mindset. In a 2008 article in the American Psychological Association, Stanford professor emeritus, Dr. Philip Zimbardo, says, quote, Every decision that we make is governed by our internal time perspective, a sort of unconscious cognitive response style that's shaped by factors like family, economics, geography, education, and culture, end quote. And he says that we have either a past orientation to time, a present orientation to time, or a future orientation to time, but that we're healthiest when we can move between those different zones, depending on the demands of the moment or the arena of our life that we're talking about. And he's done some research about people who have these different styles, these different orientations to time. For example, he found that people who classify as present-oriented people, those people tend to be energetic, friendly, creative, spontaneous. Makes sense, right? They're like living right here, right now. Interestingly, he also found that being present-oriented is also linked to behaviors like gambling, risky sex, binge drinking, and driving under the influence. So that sort of tricky blend of energy, creativity, and perhaps impulsivity. By contrast, Zimbardo found that people who can be classified as future-oriented, those people tend to be successful, save money, and make healthy choices. Zimbardo studied women in Rome, all of whom had regular breast cancer screenings. And he found that a majority of those women were future-oriented, which makes sense, right? You're getting breast cancer screenings on a regular basis. You're sort of doing things today to be mindful of, to take care of, to look towards your future. But he also found that people who are future-oriented are also at risk of isolating themselves socially and perhaps being at risk of foregoing relationships, sex, and sleep for the sake of work. Okay, so each of us has an internalized time perspective, and we've internalized it from the culture around us. And in some cultural contexts, there is a heavy focus on living for today, taking each day as it comes, not looking too far ahead. And in other cultural contexts, there's a heavy focus on looking to the future, creating goals, and preparing. So check in with yourself and with your partner and ask, to what degree might this pace discrepancy be reflective of the fact that the two of you have internalized pretty different time perspectives? If this is feeling to you like a little bit of a eureka moment, and you realize that it's not just that your partner won't talk about the future with you, 
It's that they don't really talk about the future or plan for a future at all. If that's the case, that's not the end of the story, right? You still are going to have to figure out where do you go from there. One option is that we partner across all kinds of differences. And what I know to be true is that there can be benefits in a relationship between a present-oriented partner and a future-oriented partner. The present-oriented partner makes sure that the future-oriented partner stops and smells the roses, and the future-oriented partner makes sure the present-oriented partner contributes to their 401k. The work here becomes the work of acceptance and remembering that differences bring both challenges and opportunities. However, if a present-oriented partner insists on viewing a future-oriented partner as a stick in the mud, then we can guarantee that contempt is going to creep in and it's going to erode connection. By the same token, if a future-oriented partner feels chronically afraid that the risks of living with a present-oriented partner are just too great, they're going to struggle to exhale and to ever feel very safe in the relationship. The bottom line here is that a pace discrepancy may reflect, to some degree at least, a cultural difference between the two of you that has created a difference in orientation towards time and planning. The third aspect of socialization that we need to look at is gender role socialization. Even though some of us live far beyond the gender binary today, the vast, vast majority of us were socialized as either a boy or a girl, which means that the world has been projecting personality traits, preferences, talents, and abilities onto us based on our genitals since our first breath. Or frankly, before our first breath, if our caregivers threw a gender reveal party, which by the way, is actually a sex assigned at birth party because gender is a social construct. (laughs) But I digress. This also means that the world has been creating systems of access and restriction of power and marginalization based on our genitals, which is clearly a huge topic. But for our purposes here today, what I want to say is that gender role socialization and the systems of sexism impact our intimate lives and they impact how we behave with our partners. Let's look at two stereotypes. Stereotype one is that women pressure men into commitment. If you are a longtime follower of my work, you might remember an Instagram post that I did in the summer of 2021. I had been at Party City and saw this cake topper that was a cake topper of a bride dragging her groom, presumably down the aisle. So I took a picture of it and I wrote a post about it. It captures this stereotype in the heterosexual community that women trap men into marriages, that women drag men into commitment. This is a grossly unhelpful characterization, one apparently that some people find funny. (laughs) But if we want to challenge ourselves to hold open the idea that this is a stereotype based on a kernel of truth, then let's look at why perhaps there may be times when a woman might have exerted influence over her male partner regarding getting married. Here in the U.S., it was not until 1988 
that federal law ensured that women no longer needed a man to co-sign on a business loan. 1988. When you create macro systems in which women need men to participate fully in public life, you are absolutely going to see some less than ideal behaviors in private life. We all need and deserve full agency. Stereotype two is the idea that men fear and dread intimacy. This is another grossly unhelpful characterization. But to the extent that some men do actually really display what we might call relationally avoidant behaviors, let's widen our lens here too. Research has shown that by the time they are three years old, we touch our boys less than our girls. We talk less to our boys than we do to our girls. So we all participate in creating the conditions whereby boys and men may feel confused by their own internal worlds, right? Confused and overwhelmed by their own internal worlds. And what we know to be true is if a man cannot contain and work with his own messy interior, how the hell can he sit with the messy interior of another person? And that's the heartbeat of intimacy, isn't it? So yes, some amount of fear and dread, given that context, makes sense. So when a couple is exploring their pace discrepancy, I do want them to be curious about how gender role socialization might be fueling a desire to accelerate the commitment timeline or a need to slow it down, no matter each partner's gender, gender identity, and gender expression. I just think that gender lens needs to be in the picture, not as an excuse, but as a context. And the bottom line here is that feminism, particularly intersectional feminism, is about liberating all of us so that we get to love from a place of wholeness and freedom, not need and desperation. Part two, interpersonal dynamics. Okay, I talked you through the big context that puts couples at risk for a pace discrepancy and that shapes how couples experience that pace discrepancy. So let's tighten up our lens and look at the dynamics that arise in the space between partners when one partner is ready to talk about the future and one partner is hesitant or reluctant. Reminder that if you're already a newsletter subscriber, you're going to receive a worksheet designed to help you navigate a pace discrepancy. If you are not already part of the newsletter, head to dralexandrasolomoncom slash future to download yours. And that link is also in the show notes. Let's put a big, juicy relational frame around this problem so that we can use our tools of relational self-awareness to understand that pace discrepancies have a tendency to take on a life of their own. And partners may be unwittingly and unintentionally doing things that end up confirming their worst case scenario. What do I mean by this? I mean that the more the slower paced partner avoids conversations about commitment and the future, the more the faster paced partner is going to be pursuing those conversations. And the more the faster paced partner is pursuing these conversations, the more the slower paced partner 
is likely to be avoiding them. So they end up in this cycle. This dance of pursuit and distance is going to keep each of them from understanding whatever tender, emotional, valuable, vulnerable complexity is hiding out behind the pursuing behavior or behind the avoiding behavior. Without understanding that tender complexity, each partner is left to assume, to project, to import their own meaning. Worst case scenario, the slower paced partner perceives their faster paced partner as controlling and needy. Worst case scenario, the faster paced partner perceives the slower paced partner as unreliable and commitment phobic. Because we're focusing on this relational framework, you are not going to hear me talking about someone being commitment phobic or gamma phobic, which is the technical term, meaning somebody who has a phobia of long-term commitment or marriage. I am sure in some cases that a person is genuinely incapable of, phobic of, uninterested in making a commitment. However, I suspect if you've gotten this far into this episode, it's because you are someone who's curious about but struggling with the idea of talking about the future with your partner, or because your partner is somebody who is deeply into you, but also struggling to talk with you about building a future together. Further, calling somebody commitment phobic doesn't really tell me very much about that person. The label doesn't have a whole lot of explanatory power. And it does not give us a whole lot of maneuverability. Okay, so we stuck this person with the label. They're gamophobic. Now what? It also divides us up into two buckets. Those who fear commitment and those who embrace commitment. And you know by now that I work very hard to avoid binaries. I'd much rather explore dynamics. So rather than labeling your partner or yourself as commitment phobic, I would much rather you get curious about what might be blocking the slower paced partner's willingness or excitement about moving forward with your relationship. And frankly, what is driving the faster paced partner's eagerness to progress. When we move beyond labels and assumptions, we get to learn something new about ourselves and each other and we open up new avenues for how we might move forward, right? Once we get out of that finger pointy, pursue and distance stuck place, there are avenues for moving forward that we can't even see when we're stuck. So that's why I want us to take this relational frame. Part three, intra-psychic dynamics, the things that are happening inside each partner. The deal is that when a couple is struggling with a pace discrepancy, each partner is struggling. It is definitely tough to be the faster paced partner, but it's also no walk in the park to be the slower paced partner either. The faster paced partner might be feeling deeply misunderstood and they may be wanting to just like lay into their partner and say, this is not fair. I am not racing you to the altar. I am not trying to move in with you next week. I just want to talk about where this is going. And I feel like you're making me seem so unreasonable. And the slower paced partner might feel really unappreciated. They might want to just let down and say, you don't get it. 
I am going as fast as I can. I have spent my entire life in the kiddie pool. And because I like you so damn much, I am taking a chance and learning how to swim in the deeper end of the pool. This is not easy. And sometimes I feel like nothing I do is enough for you. And I wish that you would remember that I'm trying. That's the kind of tender stuff I'm talking about. And we know that the dynamic has gotten off track when people are feeling unseen, unappreciated, misunderstood, as if their concerns are falling on ears that are not listening. So the goal is to help each of you identify and hopefully express what's going on inside of you. So in the service of that, I'm going to talk you through some questions and reflections for each of you. Okay, faster paced partner. Let me talk to you first. (laughs) The first thing I want to ask you to think about is this. What is it that you're wanting and needing from a conversation about the future? This might seem to you like a duh question. Like, are you serious? (laughs) You're asking me this question, but just bear with me. What is it that you are wanting and needing from a conversation about the future? If what you're wanting is that connection, like so much of intimacy is about imagination, play, and creativity. So I wonder if part of what you're just wanting is a chance to play and create and imagine with your partner. If that's the case, I might challenge you a little bit to consider how else you and your partner might play with your imaginations together. Just for now, not forever. But just if part of the craving is, I just want to be in a space of like possibility, meandering conversation, what if, what if, what if, is there another domain where the two of you could play with possibilities? Perhaps what you're wanting is clarification, that your partner is committed to you, that they're in, they're not going to just up and disappear tomorrow. If that's the case, are there any other ways that you might be able to feel that or that you might be able to have that reassurance which is completely understandable and wholly reasonable. But by what other means might you feel that assurance that your partner is here, that they're not going to just up and leave? And again, that's an at least for right now while your partner is struggling to talk about the future, like an interim solution or an interim comfort. The next thing I want to ask you to sit with is this. What are the specific fears that come up inside of you when your partner avoids a conversation about the future? Here, I'm asking you to do a little bit of looking at your past, your pattern, some of the core wounds or core tender spots that you bring into the relationship. Not to let your partner off the hook, but just to help you be grounded as deeply as you can be in your own understanding of why this pace discrepancy is so troubling for you. Perhaps you've been taken advantage of before and you are understandably afraid it's going to happen again. That is really legitimate for your partner to understand and to empathize with. I want you to find a way to let them in on that piece of your journey and your experience. And they can offer you empathy for that, even if it's an experience that they've never had in their lives. Perhaps you're worried that you're being foolish or that you're not seeing the writing on the wall. It may be helpful, if that's the case, to remember that a pace discrepancy is a chapter. It is not the full story. This pace discrepancy 
is where the two of you are right now. And if there's a lot that feels good and rewarding about this relationship, I wonder what might help you be patient and curious as the two of you muddle through this. Might you be able to feel proud of your patience rather than ashamed of it? It is really, really hard to hold steady when you don't know the outcome, but perhaps remind yourself that you're not going to languish here forever. The goal is clarity and momentum in one direction or the other. Okay, slower paced partner, let's talk. (laughs) Two questions for you. The first one is, what is keeping you from being available for a conversation about the future? I often find, especially when the slower paced partner is a man, someone who's been socialized in the masculine, it is often the case that his head is chock full of stories about what his partner, and I think this is especially the case if his partner is a woman, what she wants and needs from him. So his head is full of stories in which he's imagining and projecting and coming up with all kinds of stories about what she's wanting and needing in terms of expectations and demands and timelines and milestones. And these are very often stories that are not true or accurate representations of what actually lives inside of her head or what actually lives inside of her heart. But rather, these are stories that represent his fear that he's going to come up short, that he's not going to ever measure up, that he's going to be a disappointment. If this lands for you, your work here is to really listen to the partner in front of you versus the assumptions that are rattling around inside of your head, to trust and believe and listen to what the partner in front of you is asking for, those actual questions, those actual concerns versus the assumptions inside of you. It may also be the case that what keeps you from being available for a conversation about the future is that you aren't feeling on track with your own personal or professional goals and that there's perhaps some shame there for you. And so perhaps it feels hard to imagine building towards a future with a partner when you are swimming in your own waters of anxiety and self-doubt and beating yourself up about your own future. I'm going to challenge you here. What might it be like for you to share some version of that with your partner? as a way of helping your partner know that you actually are so excited about the relationship and you are experiencing some shame about stuff that's your stuff, about your own status of your own life right now, that both those things are true. You love this partner and it's hard to imagine planning a future together when you've got a lot of self-criticism going on about your own kind of individual trajectory. My second question for you slower paced partner, is what do you want your partner to be able to remember about you as the two of you struggle with this pace discrepancy? I think it's often the case that the slower paced partner feels like they've been sort of flattened out, like their partner has stuck a commitment phobic label on their head and sort of is viewing that as the end of the story. And that can feel terrible. In fact, so terrible that perhaps it's fueling your avoidance. It's leading you to feel 
shut down and to retreat even further or become more defensive because you just feel pretty misunderstood or mischaracterized by your partner. So your self-reflection work is what's getting left out? In that story that you're just commitment phobic, what's getting left out? What do you know to be true about you that needs to get put back into the story? Perhaps you want your partner to remember just how far you've come, not as an excuse, but as a context. So could you share with your partner how much your mindset and your behavior has changed or is changing? That for you, there's a lot of growth going on. Perhaps you want your partner to remember how incredibly invested you actually are in this relationship. If that part lands for you, think about how you could demonstrate your investment in behavior rather than just in words. Okay. Part four, what the heck do we do about all of this? So I've got suggestions for the faster paced partner, suggestions for the slower paced partner, and suggestions for the two of you as a couple. So faster paced partner, back to you for a moment. I've got four suggestions. The first suggestion is when you are initiating or engaging in a conversation about the future, work really hard to use we language. So rather than saying, why won't you talk about the future with me? I want you to ask your partner, how can we navigate this pace discrepancy? Suggestion two, I want to ask you to avoid leveling an ultimatum. Your slower paced partner is going to be that much more scared off and shut down by ultimatums or statements that sound like, well, I have X, Y, and Z goals in the next 10 years. Are you with me or not? You know, or if you don't do X by time Y, I'm out of here. That's what ultimatums or declarative statements sound like. So could you perhaps offer some gentler but still firm I statements like, I care a lot about you and I'm the kind of person who likes to think big picture. It makes me excited to imagine where things could go with us. Remember also that a boundary and an ultimatum are different. It's not an ultimatum to say, for example, I'm not comfortable moving in together until and unless we are engaged. That's a boundary. That's not an ultimatum. It's an ultimatum to say, if you don't, then I won't. It's a boundary to say, I'm not comfortable actually with penetrative sex until and unless we're exclusive, for example. That's a boundary. Boundaries are not punishment and they're not control moves. They are clarifications that we make in the service of the relationship to ensure that the space between us stays open-hearted and that we are both watching for signs of resentment and we're both guarding against the risk of resentment. Three, I want to invite you to engage the process and release the outcome. None of these, by the way, are easy. These are not easy recommendations and suggestions. And it's going to maybe take some practice to get any of these where you want them to be or to see any of these, you know, sort of paying off in actual behavioral change. I, I celebrate you for considering them and for trying them. So three is engage the process, release the outcome. So a conversation about the future is by definition an imaginative conversation, one in which you are looking toward an open expanse of possibilities. Where are we going to go? 
So if that's the idea is that we talk about the future with our partner in order to just like imagine where might we go? Who might we be? What might we do? See what you need to do to approach these conversations in a way that maximizes your curiosity and minimizes your anxiety, right? Because ideally, this is a conversation that is curious, that's unfolding, where you're playing off each other versus an anxious, heavy, loaded, high stakes kind of a thing. And obviously, having a partner who's willing to be self-reflective and engaged is radically helpful towards that end, right? Their self-reflection fuels your curiosity, your curiosity keeps them engaged. So those things play off each other. But it's still the case that knowing you can only control your side of the street, what do you want to be able to remember as you invite your partner into a conversation about the future? Perhaps what you want to remember is, my partner has constraints and challenges that predate me, that are not even about me. Perhaps what you want to remember in order to fuel your curiosity is, I can engage in a process without knowing the outcome. It may not be my favorite thing to do, but I can do it. Perhaps it is, my worth as a person is not contingent upon how this conversation goes. The last suggestion I have is, I really want you to honor the ways in which this pace discrepancy is very likely activating some of your core wounds. Yes, you are upset that your partner will not talk about the future with you or is hesitating about the next commitment milestone. And anybody in that situation would feel insecure and frustrated. Those feelings make sense. And I want to invite you to do a little bit of what I call ghost busting. In other words, can you get curious about which wound from your past or is there a wound from your past that's getting activated? In other words, Are my feelings about our pace discrepancy about more than just my partner's hesitation? What do they remind me of? That's ghost busting. What does this moment right here, right now, remind me of from my past? And in what ways is that old pain shaping my response and perhaps limiting my flexibility and perhaps fueling my anxiety and emotionality? So one core wound would be this wound around, I don't feel chosen. So if you're somebody who had a parent whose attention, for example, seemed to be on anything and everything except for you, if that was your early experience, it makes so much sense to me that your partner's hesitation would feel especially hurtful because you once again feel not chosen. Perhaps you have a wound around abandonment. If you had a parent or a caregiver who was emotionally or physically unavailable to you, it makes so much sense to me that commitment feels like security and that you are very sensitive about the risk of being abandoned, right? That is a fear for all of us. And it may be supercharged if you had an early experience of actual emotional and or physical abandonment. The third wound I'll just suggest to you is a wound around worthiness, like feeling I don't feel worthy. If you've struggled in your life around feelings of worthiness, which we all have to some degree, but for others of us, it's more poignant, more longstanding, more in the foreground. If this is the case for you, your partner's reluctance might feel once again, like it becomes a reflection of your inadequacy and it triggers or activates 
feelings of shame for you. So the bottom line with that is to just be tender, be tender, be gentle with yourself around what's getting stirred up inside of you. Okay, back to you, slower paced partner. I have five suggestions for you. The first one is I want you to feel like you can ask for a break when you need one. So it's far easier to enter a difficult conversation when you know and you can trust that you can take breaks as needed. So pay attention to your body. And if and when you begin to feel things like tightness in your chest, flush in your cheeks, a racing heart, ask your partner for a pause. You can even let them know ahead of time. I am so wanting to be in this conversation. I can do it. It's not easy for me, but I love us. I'm here for it. I just might need to go slowly and take some breaks. And even if it's just a pause to stand up and get some water or take a shower, that may be enough to help you reset and then stretch a little bit more into this conversation. Our emotions are bodily experiences and they need to be honored as such. So resist the pull of urgency. You don't have to figure it all out in one conversation. You get to go slowly, engage, pause, regulate, engage again. The second suggestion I have for you, slower paced partner, is to pay attention to your internal experience. What's going on inside of you? It can be very tempting to focus on what your partner is doing or what your partner is not doing. And rather than criticizing your partner, stop pressuring me, stop needing answers that I can't give, focus instead on what's happening inside of you. Bonus points if you can say any or all of the following out loud. Maybe something like, it's hard for me to see you upset. I realize that your happiness matters a lot to me. Perhaps it's something like, I do not like it when I feel like I'm disappointing you. Perhaps it's something like, I really want us to feel like we're on the same team. Those little windows into what's going on inside of you increase connection. They're soothing to your partner and they're much, much more collaborative than critiquing your partner. My third suggestion for you is same suggestion I gave to the faster paced partner, which is to engage the process while releasing the outcome, right? This conversation about the future is by definition, imaginative. You don't know where it's going to go. You can control your side of the street. And I want you to think for yourself about what is it that you want to be able to remember as you engage in this process, as you stretch yourself into these new conversations or into these difficult conversations, what do you want to remember? What might be your mantra? And I'll suggest a few. Perhaps it is, my partner wants to talk about the future with me, not to pressure me, not to control me, but because my partner loves me. Perhaps it is, I can feel steady even as I enter this new kind of conversation. Perhaps it is, I can be both nervous and open-hearted. Perhaps it's, I can engage in the process without knowing the outcome. Perhaps it is, my worth is not contingent on how this conversation goes. The fourth one is, say again, same as I gave your faster-paced partner, which is honoring your core wound activation. So I'm asking you also to do a little bit of ghost busting. So yes, You feel pressured by your partner and confused about what you want, 
But what else might be getting stirred up inside of you? Perhaps stuff that began long before you even met this partner. Two suggestions are, it may be something around feeling like you aren't enough. Did you perhaps have a highly critical parent and you felt like you never quite earned their favor? If that's the case, it can be exquisitely painful to feel like you're letting your partner down. So painful, in fact, that what you may be pulling away from is less a conversation about the future and more that feeling of being a disappointment, of feeling like you aren't enough. By contrast, perhaps you felt smothered as a child. When you were younger, if you had an intrusive parent or a parent who wanted and needed an inordinate and inappropriate amount of closeness with you, if that's the case for you, it might be really hard to trust your partner's desire to connect more deeply with you. The line between closeness and smothering might feel really fuzzy for you. And if any of that is the case, it's really important to honor that for yourself, to work with it within yourself, to let your partner know, listen, my reactivity right now is bigger and older than this relationship challenge that we're facing. That can feel like a huge relief to your partner, to your faster paced partner. And it might help them feel more patient, more collaborative, and more gentle with you. My fifth suggestion for you is just to practice compassion. Practice compassion for yourself about what talking about the future is stirring up inside of you. I want you to remember that you don't have to be perfect to be lovable, that you actually get to continue to grow and achieve and evolve in this relationship. You clearly have something wonderful to offer this partner of yours because this partner of yours is advocating for a future with you. So could you be compassionate with yourself and remember all of that, that you are bringing, clearly you're bringing quite a bit to the table for this conversation. In terms of how to proceed as a team, here are three specific practices that might help you. The first one is couples therapy. You know by now that I'm a huge fan of couples therapy and a pace discrepancy is a really great presenting problem to bring to a couples therapist. Sometimes a couple will end up putting a moratorium on talking about the future outside of couples therapy. And that might especially be the case if the couple has experienced a series of conversations on their own that have not gone well, that have left them feeling discouraged and raggedy. And limiting these future-oriented conversations to your couple's therapist's office can be helpful for the slower-paced partner because they know that these emotionally challenging conversations about the status of the relationship are going to happen in the presence of a supportive third party. And knowing this can help them feel less defensive and less guarded throughout the week. Limiting talk about the future to couples therapy sessions can also frankly be helpful for the faster paced partner because now they know that they don't have to be strategizing when and how and in what way they're going to bring this issue up at home. They just know that it's going to get talked about in couples therapy, again, in the presence of a supportive third party. My second suggestion is that you do a weekly check-in. You might find it helpful either in addition to or instead of couples therapy to have a weekly check-in meeting. This can be a great habit that can help the slower paced partner begin to train that relationship talk muscle of theirs in a low key, low risk kind of a way. And it can help the faster paced partner feel like 
even as they are frustrated or uncertain about whether or when and how they're going to reach the next commitment milestone, they know that they have a partner who is invested and engaged because they're showing up for these weekly check-in meetings. You can structure a weekly meeting however you want. It needs to look whatever way the two of you want it to look. It can be as simple as something that is 10 minutes long once a week. I'm going to offer you a model, but just tweak it. Make it your own. One model for how you could do a couple's weekly check-in is this. Partner A shares a personal victory from the week. Partner B shares a personal victory from the week. Partner A shares a personal challenge from the week. Partner B shares a personal challenge from the week. Partner A shares an affirmation, a validation, a hot damn about their partner. And then partner B shares an affirmation, a validation, a hot damn about their partner. Then partner A shares a relational growing edge or a concern that is paired with a thought about next steps. And then partner B shares a relational growing edge or concern that is paired with their thought about next steps. Then partner A shares an intention for the coming week and partner B shares an intention for the coming week and scene. So just simple, right? A victory, a challenge, an affirmation, a growing edge, an intention. My third suggestion is that you do regular relationship status updates. So you might also find it helpful to agree to regular check-ins that are specific to this pace discrepancy. And maybe it's monthly, maybe it's quarterly, but these are conversations that are designed to help you just take the relationship temperature. And so the questions that you might bring into a relationship status update would be, one, what change or evolution has either of us noticed since the last time we discussed? And two, does this change that we're noticing bring us towards deeper alignment or does it seem to be creating more distance? Setting up a relationship status update honors the concern of the faster paced partner and it gives a slower paced partner some breathing room. When we're unsure whether and when our concerns are going to be tended to, any given interaction can feel like it's a commentary on the status of the whole relationship and the stakes become just too high. So knowing that both partners are keeping their eye on this challenge, on this pace discrepancy, can reduce the hypervigilance such that the faster paced partner is less likely to feel like a fool and the slower paced partner is less likely to feel like a disappointment. And in conclusion, I want to thank you for joining me today. We covered a lot of ground, and I hope this episode has given you some new perspectives on how to think about, how to feel about, and how to deal with conversations about the future with a partner and how to navigate a pace discrepancy. Don't forget to download the worksheet at dralexandrasolomon.com slash future. I'm looking forward to connecting with you next week on Reimagining Love. Until then, be well. Are you interested in exploring how to rebuild trust after a betrayal like infidelity and to have support, tools, and insights on that journey? If so, I invite you to check out my brand new e-course, Can I Trust You Again? Rebuilding After Betrayal or Deceit. 
This is a five-module self-paced course based on research and clinical wisdom, backed by my many years of experience working with couples who are attempting to rebuild after betrayal, and my many years training marriage and family therapy graduate students to work with couples who are grappling with infidelity. You can take this course alone or with your partner at your own pace. After completing the lessons and activities in this course, you will better understand yourself and your partner, and you will have taken the necessary steps to begin healing the pain and reimagining your relationship in light of this crisis. This course will set you on your path forward, whether you continue as a couple or end the relationship. And if you're currently single, you will have the tools needed to lay a foundation of trust in your next relationship. To learn more and enroll, head to www.courses.dralexandrasolomon.com. You can also find the course link in the show notes. Thank you for listening to our show. Our producer is Elizabeth Vogt. Our editors are Mary Chan and Danelle Cloutier of Organized Sound Productions. Our theme music was composed by Slade Warnkin. Reimagining Love is executive produced by me, Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Do you have a relationship question that you want to have answered on the show? Follow the link in the show notes of this episode to send in a written or audio question. Questions can be about intimate partnerships, family relationships, friendships, you name it. I can't wait to hear from you.